up on today's show, the feds are aiming to clear the passport backlog in four to six weeks. Sounds pretty ambitious. How are they going to do it? Danielle Smith, seeking the UCP leadership, will join us along with John Horseman, another UCP leadership candidate. And this Rogers outage pointing to uh, maybe we need a little more oversight, a little more government regulation in telecommunications. You have no doubt seen the stories. We've talked about them here on the show many times. Uh, If you haven't lived it yourself, and I know a lot of you have, uh, getting a passport in this country has become a real nightmare in a lot of ways. People, you know, you've seen them sleeping outside in lineups to try and get in. Some of them for multiple days. Others tried to do the right thing well in advance and go through the mail. Didn't work. Uh, Took months and months and months for the system to come through. It's been a mess. It really and truly has. This week, the federal government announced their intentions to clear up this backlog in four to six weeks. Um... This just a week or so after an emergency triage system had to be brought in. So so what's the plan? We'll find out now. We're going to chat with Karina Gold, who is Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, and the MP for Burlington. Um, Minister Gold, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we get to um, how we're going to try and fix this and clear up the backlog, how did it happen? What went wrong? How did things get so out of hand? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question and one that I'm sure a lot of people are asking. I mean, the the fact of the matter is is that we saw a huge volume of applications come in between February, March, April, and May, but they came in not through the in-person channel, they came in through the mail. And the passport system wasn't designed uh, to handle such big volumes through the mail. It's really before the pandemic, it was about 80% in-person and 20% by mail. That flipped um, over the past few months, um, and we, you know, did not have the capacity to process that volume of mail. The mail system is about 40% less efficient uh, than in person, and so we've had to really ramp up our processing uh, through the mail, and that's what we're continuing to do. But really, it's, um, you know, we knew there was going to be a surge uh, when travel restrictions were lifted, but we um, did not anticipate it would be nearly as big as it was. Um, so, as you say, this goes back to, you know, February, March. So we're, we're talking about four or five months in some cases here. What's been done in the meantime? I know we had the triage plan, but that was just last week. Uh, what has the government been doing to try and catch up? Yeah, well, I was actually in Edmonton and Calgary in April and, uh, you know, saw some of the lines at the passport office then. So back then we started hiring uh, additional officers. Um, it takes about 12 to 15 weeks to train passport officers. So we started hiring uh, hundreds more already back in April. Those folks are now starting to come online end of June, beginning of July. So that's helping us, you know, tackle the backlog. And we're also hiring an additional 500 um, passport officers this month. And we've reduced um, and streamlined the training. So it's not going to take 12 to 15 weeks. We're doing it in a more modular way so we can get people, you know, doing um, the kind of more simple renewals within one to two weeks. Okay, so, so yeah, I mean, 12 to 14 weeks, I was shocked when I read that it takes 12 to 14. I mean, all due respect, I just don't know what that kind of training would entail. So you've now got that cut down to one to two weeks for the frontline workers? For the people who are doing the um, passport review. So, you know, I know um, it's, it's, you know, it's challenging, and it's frustrating, and I really get that, but passports are a secure document, right? There's mm-hmm. integrity to the Canadian passport that we absolutely have to maintain. And we have, it's much easier to do a renewal, um, but only about 
15% of the applications that we've gotten over the last three, four months have been for renewal. The other 85% are for brand new applications. So either, you know, babies that have been born over the past couple of years, children who um, require a renewal, and children's passports are actually more complex, especially when there's custody issues involved. Um, and then for new citizens or adults who, uh, you know, prior to the pandemic didn't have a passport. So those are more complicated. And so we want to save those ones for the more experienced passport officers. And that's where we've really reduced the training for uh, folks to do gotcha. the more simple renewals and really clear through that backlog. Uh, the other issue that I think a lot of people have raised and I've heard from here on the show is, you know, trying to figure out what the right course of action is here because they've gone down to Service Canada offices only to be told, yeah, you shouldn't be here. You can go back and do it another way. Come back if it gets within. I mean, the communication around this whole situation and what the best course of action is for Canadians seems to have gone off the rails at some point. Is there a clear plan in place that people can consult to find the best course of action if they need to get a passport? Yes, so there is. So if you go on to Canada.ca and click on Get a Passport, there's kind of three buckets, and it's geo-targeted based on where you live, because the situation is different across the country. Okay. There are some offices that really aren't very busy, and so you can go there up to 45 days before travel to get your passport. That's not the case right now in Edmonton. In Edmonton, uh, they're triaging the line based on 12, 24, and 48 hours from the travel date. So if you are traveling immediately, absolutely go to uh, the Edmonton Canada Place Passport Office. Um, if your travel is within the next 10 days, you can still go there, and they'll probably give you a ticket to come back at a later date with an appointment uh, ahead of your travel. But the volume in Edmonton is so much right now that they are just trying to make sure people get their passport um, before their travel uh, and they don't have the capacity to do things further out. If your travel, you know, if, if you're not traveling for a while, now is not really the time to renew your passport. Let us clear through this backlog, mm-hmm. get back into more normal service standards, um, and then, you know, make your application. So, my, you know, my best advice is if it's not urgent and imminent, um, you know, don't don't put yourself through that, and we're going to get to a much better place in the next couple of weeks. Um, yeah, what is the timeline here? Four to six weeks, you hope to have the backlog cleared? We hope to have the backlog to a place where we can get people their passports within that 20-day service standard if they send it in by mail. Um, but much preferred is to actually go to a Service Canada centre um, that's not uh, a passport site, um, and that way you actually get to keep all of your documents, right? Yeah. If you go there, there's someone who can review it, input it into the system, and then they can process the passport. But, you know, it's look, I understand the anxiety about sending certificates and citizenship yeah. cards off. Um, and so if you go to a Service Canada site that's not passport, they can take all of that information in um, and then process the passport. So uh, that's that's, you know, a better way if, if you can do that. And that will be available um, in the next couple of weeks at all Service Canada uh, locations across the country. Any chance that those offices are going to see extended hours, uh, open on weekends, things like that, to try and help clear this backlog? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, look, there were 10,000 hours of overtime worked last week across the country um, in Edmonton and Calgary. Um, you know, they are serving everybody who's in line right now. So whether it's, you know, people who are traveling urgently, they're getting their passports, 
if you go and your travel isn't urgent, they're giving you um, a ticket to come back at, for an appointment at a later date. But they're making sure that, you know, everybody who is in line is served um, given their current situation. And the folks at those Service Canada centres are there until the last person um, is served. So they are. They're also giving appointments on weekends for people who, again, whose travel is a bit later. Right. Um, so they're, they're doing that. And, you know, the big... The big push really is in our processing centers in uh, Ontario and Quebec, where the mail and applications go. And we've got folks from right across the government of Canada that are there evenings and weekends to help get through this backlog. Um, Minister, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. No, thank you. Thank you. That is Minister Karina Gold, the Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, MP for Burlington. Well, yesterday, UCP leadership hopeful Danielle Smith filed her nomination papers and paid in full the $175,000 fee that is required to run for leadership of the party, the first to do so. She's got some wind in her sails and uh, delighted that she's agreed to join us this morning. Danielle, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Always nice to chat. Yeah. Hi, Shay. Thanks for having me. Yeah. How are things going? I mean, you obviously you've got to be feeling like things are headed in a great direction for you. Campaign going well so far. We are, you know, I love traveling this province. It's just one of the delights about campaigning is going to different places, seeing interesting things, having great food, having great conversation. It's amazing to me always just as well, just how much we have in common, whether we live in Calgary or Edmonton or rural Alberta. So uh, I've been pretty busy traveling quite a bit, going to a lot of stampede parties. So I've taken it a little easy <laughs> today. I don't know if you managed to get out much for those stampede parties, but my gosh, there's a ton of them out there and it's, the- been, it's been super fun to be right back into it again. Yeah, there must do's. There's no question about it. I want to ask you about some of the things. Obviously, the big headline uh, in your campaign so far is the Sovereignty Act, the Day One Sovereignty Act, which has a number of different wrinkles into it. The one that stands out to most people, I think, as you know, is, yeah, if there's federal laws that we think are, you know, injurious to Alberta, we just won't enforce them. We're just going to ignore them. Um, As you know, in the business, has legal looked at that, Danielle? There are a lot of scholars and there's a lot of other, you know, leadership hopefuls who even say, that that doesn't even make sense. Legally, that can't happen. So how secure are you in saying that you can go ahead with that and it's not just going to be thrown out of court before it even starts? Well, I do have a couple of lawyers on my campaign team. One of them, Rob Anderson, who is practicing as a lawyer and was one of my key policy people when we were back in in uh, the legislature a number of years ago. And I think once people see the wording, they'll understand what we are uh, aiming to do is to assert the Constitution and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms as the highest law in the land, which they should be. I, mean, I think we, <clears throat> we have to be aware that we've been Sorry, I'm a little throaty. No, it's all right. Yeah, we we have to be aware that the the federal government under Justin Trudeau has really been he he created a constitutional crisis in November of 2015 when he violated the Constitution and his his jurisdiction and requirement under the Constitution to facilitate trade and commerce by putting economic sanctions on Alberta and telling us we couldn't sell our products. Now I think we've been pussyfooting around and playing nice about that, but there's no question. 
that uh, the the law of the land, which is the uh, 90, section 92 and 92A of the Constitution that gives us the exclusive right to develop our resources, has been violated. There's also no doubt in the last two years that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms has not been respected. So when I look at the Sovereignty Act, essentially what it would say is that if we perceive that the federal government is passing policies that violate our constitutional rights under section 92 uh, or, or the rights of our citizens under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, we're simply not going to enforce it. And so if they want to take us to court because we're standing by the Constitution and they're not, I'm, I'd be prepared to fight that out. Yes. Yeah, well, they, they certainly would take it. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned um, uh, Rob Anderson. He, he himself has said he doesn't think this would stand up in, in terms of constitutional challenge and, and going to the Supreme Court. He says he's questionable as to whether or not it has a legal leg to stand on. It depends how you use it. I mean, I look at what's happened in Quebec when the Emergencies Act was declared then the Quebec convened their National Assembly, which is what they call yeah. it. And they said, we're not going to enforce that here. And why didn't we do the same? Especially now that we're seeing that there was very, very little legitimacy for uh, invoking the, the Emergencies Act. We've seen that through the testimony in the legislature. We also should have said that when they started seizing bank accounts, we should have encouraged people to move their money over to credit unions and say, no, sorry, we're not going to be seizing bank accounts either. We won't enforce that here. You look at British Columbia as well. British Columbia just got a reprieve from enforcing the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. So you can now legally own and possess and use fentanyl and cocaine and crack and crack. and Where, crystal where, where can you do that? In, in British Columbia, they, they've asked for an exemption from the Controlled right. uh, Drugs and Substances Act, which is federal law. And so I guess what I'm saying is that we've seen precedent for this in other provinces. Uh, we'd have to look at it on a case-by-case basis. But mostly I'm just drawing a line with yeah. Ottawa. Stay out of our jurisdiction, and we won't have to invoke it. Um, okay. Uh, obviously, it's wildly popular with a number of people that you need to support you for leadership of the UCP. And we're seeing the numbers 25, 30 percent of Albertans are on board with this. They like what you're doing. Um, they're all UCP um, Voters, So it's going very well with your leadership campaign. But there's also polling that shows, you know what, it's going to set you up to get whacked by Rachel Notley when we go to a general election, because a lot of people, frankly, find this to be extreme, to be not something they could possibly support. Are you worried that you're going to have to try and pivot from some of the things you're talking about here to be more palatable in a general election? There's a whole range of policies that we're putting forward. And so, you know, what you do in politics is you you bring together coalitions. There's a coalition of voters that are gravely concerned about our relationship with Ottawa. There's also a coalition of voters that are gravely concerned that Ottawa is going to force vaccine mandates again once we get into fall respiratory virus season. I've said we're not going to do that either. And there's also a a portion of the population gravely concerned that our health care system has demonstrated it uh, it can't perform under pressure. There is, but so, it's a minority. You know that. I'm just saying those are three huge issues that, um, and I put policy forward on all three of them. Just today, I announced uh, our health spending accounts as well. That we would start with uh, $300 in a health spending account in the fall, so that people could uh, can start taking control over their own health care and start putting some investment in preventative measures. So not everybody is going to love every single policy that a, a politician puts forward. But I, I would tell you on on this, when it gets comes to getting tough with Ottawa, I'd put myself up against Rachel Notley any day. You have to remember she uh, acquiesced. The 
reason we have a carbon tax is because she was the first to put it in. She also put a cap on our oil sands. She also phased out coal. She also put in an aggressive target, a 45% reduction in methane well, Hang on. When you mention a carbon tax, Danielle, let me, just, I mean, let me finish that, Shay, because she said that that was going to get a social license, and we believed her, and it didn't. What did we get instead? We got the Bill C-48, which doesn't allow us to export our resources. We got Bill C-69, which doesn't allow us to develop our resources. We got cancellations of Energy East, cancellation of Northern Gateway, cancellation of the tech frontier mine. So that's what happens when you play nice with Ottawa and try to acquiesce to their demands is that they push back against you even harder. So we're drawing a clear line. And yeah, I think I'll be able to, to demonstrate to Albertans well, that I'll be tougher with Ottawa than Rachel Notley will. Okay. But the flip side to that is you push back on the carbon tax. Jason Kenney did, said we're getting rid of the carbon tax. Okay. You can't. That means the federal carbon tax is now in place in Alberta. So instead of the money being collected from the carbon tax, staying in Alberta and being in Alberta's control, we're sending the money straight off to Ottawa. So in the end, it ended up costing Albertans. I don't think there should be a retail carbon tax. But there is. I mean, it's gone to the Supreme Court and there is, Daniel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sad that we're not, we weren't able to win that through the Supreme Court. And I think that also shows sort of the flawed nature of how the Confederation works. I mean, we should have the ability to make these kinds of, of decisions locally. I mean, when you look at the Supreme Court, you've got three judges that are appointed by Quebec. We've got no judges that are guaranteed to be appointed by, appointed by Alberta. So I think we, we do have to get into some constitutional discussions about how we would change our relationship with Ottawa. And that's what all of this is really about, mm-hmm. is when you look at the trajectory that we are on, that we're going to be the second largest economy within the next few years. By about 2050, we're going to be the second most populous province by projections I've seen uh, the, the, uh, based on some uh, Stats Canada studies. And so when you look at that, how, how are we going to continue to operate in a country that is so unbalanced and unfair to Alberta? We don't get the Supreme Court justice appointees like Quebec do. They've got 24 Senate seats. We've got six. They've got a guaranteed number of House of Commons seats, and we don't. Like I think there's a constitutional reckoning coming, and people need to realize that. So the question I would have is, when are we going to stand up and start acting like a senior partner in confederation and stop acting like a junior player and i say that times now um okay running out of time one more before i let you go though uh and and not to deal with ottawa but to deal with alberta right now we are seeing record um oil production record profits all the rest uh, surpluses just overnight blooming surpluses what do you do with that surplus what's your plan how do you handle that I think we have to realize that we have $16 billion worth of resource revenue and we only have a $4 billion surplus. So that means that we still have a structural deficit of $12 billion. We've got to focus on how we're going to bring that structural deficit down because we aren't going to have these high oil prices and these royalty revenues for forever. We know that we can, when the bottom falls out, it falls out and crashes in a, a pretty bad way. So I think what we still need to do is we need to get our spending and our revenues right-sized and we need to be spent, saving a heck of a lot more of uh, our overall our revenues. I'd like to build that fund up. If you look at Norway... On Alaska, they have massive funds that generate a long-term investment income that can ultimately be used to supplement program spending or reduce taxes. So I'd like to do do a much better job of stewarding that resource wealth while we have it to make sure that we, we save more and that we become debt-free. That was one of the when I, yeah. when you announced today that we were paid in full in our in our uh, cam, in our campaign. I, I remember Ralph Klein holding up that sign, "Paid yep. in full," and that's part of my Alberta identi- identity to be debt-free. I'd sure like to, us to get back there again. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Always nice to chat. Uh, We'll do this again as we go along. You bet. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. That's Daniel Smith, UCP leadership candidate. Right now, though, we're going to go on with another UCP leadership candidate. We're going to chat now with John Horseman. Um, 
John is seeking the leadership just like Daniel is. Uh, Mr. Horseman, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Shay. I'm excited to be here. Uh, it's obviously a really uh, divisive time, not only in the province, but within the party itself. The party, as we know, that's how we got into this point, is clearly, clearly divided among many, many different lines. So if you become leader, what what's the vision? How do you unite this party, seeing what we see play out daily on the campaign trail? Yeah, Shay, it's, um, that's exactly why I'm getting involved, is uh, I look at Alberta. I look at Alberta as really the land of opportunity. We have so much going for us, and we have worked so hard, and we sacrificed a lot to get where we are today. And the only thing that I, I see, uh, you know, that could have potentially disrupt, um, you know, this, uh, this prosperity that we're, we're enjoying is uh, politics. And, uh, you know, I spent 20 years working for Alberta, helping it grow and thrive, fighting for Albertans, um, um, you know, on Bay Street, on Wall Street, and helping them build their businesses. And uh, when I saw, A, the divisions, and I saw the challenges that we faced, you know, I realized for myself, it was time to get involved. It's time for somebody to step up and trying to, you know, it's time for, for good people to try and do something uh, to move this province forward and, and make sure that we can all enjoy the quality of life that we work so hard for. The situation that the party finds itself in now, there's sort of competing um, schools of thought on how it got to that point. Some say it was policy. Um, and the premier says, you know, it's people who are angry over his COVID decisions. Um, and that's sort of how he got into this mess. Uh, other people say it's not so much the policy, it's the way that things were handled. It's um, a lack of humility, an unwillingness to listen to the grassroots. What do you think um, sort of led this party to where it is now? Was it leadership or was it policy? It's 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 a good question. I would I would have a my, my views here are really I think the question on the table is we are going through a leadership transition. Alberta needs something new. They need something different than how well got us, you know, to where we are today. Um, Jason Kenny submitted himself to the will of the people, and uh, the people spoke. And we now now need a, need a way to kind of move forward. Um, I think you're right. I think all your comments were right mm-hmm. in terms of uh, uh, some of the drivers of that. But the question on the table isn't how to solve the problems of the past. The question on the table is, what do we need for our future? And that's where, uh, that's where you know, a candidate like myself, with a proven history of leadership, with a proven history of getting things done, um, I have a lot of uh, Albertans have asked me to come forward because they're looking at all of those issues, and they believe that only an outsider to the political, uh, you know, to the, the, the political machine can actually solve that issue or those issues. Um, we just had Danielle Smith on, and of course, uh, she seemed perceived to be the front runner and, and and the headline issue so far in this campaign uh, has been Ottawa and it always is when you're talking about Alberta politics she's really taking a stance with the sovereignty act we just won't enforce federal laws all kinds of things what's your take on how to deal with Ottawa how do you get Alberta to get uh it's been called a fair deal a better deal all the things how do relationships between Ottawa and Alberta work under your leadership yeah, it's it's a, it's a great question. I mean, for the you know what I've learned is that in any negotiation, you do, you have to understand what they want. You have to understand where you have an alignment of interests, and you have to understand uh, where those those interests diverge. And 
you know, you know, from, from my perspective, the alignment of interest is, you know, they, they deeply need our, our prosperity. They, Ottawa deeply needs our contribution to Confederation. Primarily, it's financial. Um, I think that is the line that needs to be defended. Um, I don't, you know, we've, we've watched uh, a, a number of uh, really great, re- you know, really great programs that have a lot of rhetoric, but are deep, you know, but are ineffective. They, they don't do anything. And, and um, I think the intersection of what Alberta contributes to Confederation and what Canada needs from Alberta, you know, kind of stands, uh, stands, you know, in the financial in you know, at the financial intersection. And that's where my expertise is deep. I, you know, I was uh, the last couple of years I was instrumental in, in kind of you know, bringing uh, the funds from Ottawa to Alberta to float businesses and to help Alberta kind of survive the pandemic without uh, without business catastrophes. I've uh, worked with Ottawa and you know some of their programs, and there's also and there's some programs where they just they just fundamentally have it wrong, and we know what those are, and we do need to uh, kind of step up and, and move that forward. Um, the specific actions, though, is you know there's also responsibility in Alberta to take more responsibility for itself, and I'll be advocating for that, and you know as, as many of my my fellow candidates would, which is you know police force, uh, pension administration, collection of taxes. Okay, so those are some things that you would want a provincial police force, provincial collection of taxes, and a provincial uh, pension plan. That's in your platform? Absolutely. Okay. Um, right now, you mentioned Alberta's prosperity. We're seeing it, uh, you know, as, as it comes and goes. And right now, we're in a very prosperous cycle. We're seeing energy revenues through the roof. The surplus overnight boomed. Um, what do you do? How do you handle that? I know you have an interesting plan, an interesting strategy with what to do with Alberta surpluses going forward. Yeah, thank you, Shay. This is what I'm calling the Alberta Prosperity Plan, and and really it's it's to take into account and understand that uh, you know we we have to we have to look at our prosperity and we have to be responsible for it, but we also have to be responsible in accordance with our core values of individual choice, uh, fiscal fiscal restraint, and you know kind of long term prudence. And my plan would be to allocate the the, the resource revenues you know subject to fiscal anchors like a credit rating and uh, a debt to GDP uh, position. Um, basically, one quarter uh, would go to the people of Alberta because we found, and I've, I've noticed that you know, at times of rising resource uh, revenues in the government are usually at times of uh, affordability problems with the people of Alberta because of the energy costs. And so, like Alaska. I would allocate a portion of that resource revenue directly to the people of Alberta because they know better than the government what they need to live their best. So lives. those are straight cash payments to Albertans. Yes, another quarter I'd allocate to the Heritage Saving Trust Fund. So we have the financial resources that we need to, um, for, you know, to live in a future without resource revenue. A quarter to uh, debt repayments so that the future generations don't have to pay for our current spending. And then a quarter to advance the diversification in the infrastructure needs that Alberta, Alberta has to continue um, our prosperity and to continue to uh, grow our, our capacity and our economic capacity. Um, the leadership fee, $175,000, uh, a number of signatures. Any concerns that you won't be able to get over that hurdle? Can we count on you being there when the votes are cast? Uh, we're making tremendous process, uh, progress, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. But you know, the word race is the right word. This is a race, and these hurdles are established to be meaningful and established to ensure that candidates have 
enough broad-based support all across uh, Alberta and enough financial support all across Alberta. So um, we're we're on a we're on a good path. Um, you know, Travis Taze and, and Daniel Smith are you know they submitted and, and they're they're moving forward. And um, I believe we'll get there. And you know, I'm really asking for the people of Alberta if they want a voice and a fresh perspective, and they want the opportunity to continue to enjoy the benefits uh, and the prosperity they have today and live in this land of opportunity, I am reaching out and asking for support, Shay. All right. Mr. Horseman, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Great conversation. And uh, as I said, we'll check in again as we go along. Thank you. That is John Horseman, who is running to be leader of the UCP. A uh, little background on John. He's been in finance for a long time with ATB. Um, so uh, that's where he's coming from. He says he's been a member of the UCP, but, you know, he's never been a politician. So he's got a bit of an outsider's take on things. Rogers has now said they will compensate their customers with the equivalent of five days of service in a response to what happened last Friday. So I guess, you know, it depends on how much you pay per month. Figure out, oh, you can do the math. You're going to have to pay one-sixth of your bill will be coming back to you. A reminder, all kinds of warnings out from all kinds of police agencies. You do not have to do anything, okay? Um, The CEO, Tony Staffieri, said that uh, the credit will automatically be applied to your account. So if you're getting a text, if you're getting a call, if you're getting an email, anything like that telling you to do this to get your Rogers rebate, ignore it. It's, It's a scam, okay? You don't have to do anything. Should be on next month's bill, according to the CEO. In some instances, may take a little longer, depending on how it goes. Now there's a class action lawsuit that has also been filed, some some discussion around whether or not that'll actually get off the ground. And then, of course, there's the other angle of this, which is businesses, you know, that rely on Interact and all that, because all that was down too. It was, you know, what about people who work from home? How much did they lose over the course of the day? So it's not just a matter of self-service gone down. Um, Regardless of how all that gets sorted out in terms of compensation, we know the pressure is on to try and prevent anything like this from happening again. And the clock is now ticking for Canada's telecommunications giants. An emergency meeting with uh, the industry minister on Monday, and they were given 60 days to come up with a plan to make sure that what happened on Friday doesn't happen again. It's um, the government getting themselves completely and totally involved in business here. There's no two ways about it, but that's always a little tricky. But have we proven that, at least in this instance, these businesses are they're in a special category. I mean, I don't know if we want to call it an essential service, but it's pretty close, right? A lot of essential systems went down last week. So what do we need to do to... Uh, you know, how how involved should we be? How much regulation? Should there be requirements? We're going to chat with Dr. Dwayne Winsek, who is a communications professor at Carleton University and the director of the Canadian Media Concentration Research Project. Dr. Winsek, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me, Shay. Thanks to be here. So when we take a look at this and this whole industry, and based on what we saw, you know, a couple of times over the past couple of years. Is this something where we should be welcoming more government oversight, more government involvement, regulation, just because of how dependent we are on these services? Uh, Yes, I believe that's absolutely uh, the case here and that it's justified. And essentially what we have is a small number of private corporations upon which a large number of essential uh, economic and public services depend. 
And in that uh, situation where markets don't uh, correspond to the kind of the textbook fantasy of free markets, it's the role of governments to step in and to make sure that these large players that have significant influence on people's lives, the economy and society, have corresponding public obligations to match. So in terms of regulation, when we're talking about you know, getting more involved and having some government regulation, like what? How would that work? Well, I think what we're seeing right now is the government kind of uh, going softly, and in my view, perhaps a little bit too softly, and taking a mother-may-I uh, approach and by setting this 60-day uh, timeline for industry to kind of come up with its own uh, set of proposals. And, you know, this is backstopped by a set of, let's say, more formidable regulatory tools with teeth that the government has at its disposal. Uh, in particular, the Telecommunications Act gives the minister, Champagne, uh, the authority to issue an order uh, in council to direct the companies to uh, do certain things. So here he's kept that club. Uh, in the background, so to speak, and handed it over to industry. Whether that will work or not, we shall see. Yeah, the plan that he's come up with, you know, common sense would say this is a pretty good idea. Like if one of the providers has their network go down, we are allowed to access the other providers. And, you know, they help each other out through this situation. I don't know how open they are to it. He says they are, and they're interested in having these discussions. Does that seem like a feasible step one, at least, in, in sort of securing Canadians' access to these services? Yes. To me, I think, you know, one thing, I want to qualify my own, uh, uh, you know, ability to kind of opine on these things because I'm not an engineer. And so these are complicated yeah. uh, issues uh, that we're facing here. And so we need to be skeptical of anybody who steps forward and says, oh, I have some magic bullet uh, answer to these complex problems. But um, that said, um, yes, it does seem like a, a decent first start. Uh, and that we have the ability to immediately or very quickly and easily and seamlessly fall back on a rival carrier. Um, now, putting the, uh, the measures in place are going to need to distinguish between very large institutional users like the banks that provide Interact services and government that provides uh, 9-11 emergency services and, uh, you know, visa uh, services and so on versus your, you know, everyday uh, residential user. Now, with the government coming out and saying you have 60 days to come back with a plan, um, you know, you talked about this earlier in terms of what the government can do. Uh, you know, they're, they're making these demands and they do have a chance to throw a bit of weight around. But can they, can they enforce this? I mean, do we have a framework in place where the government can actually dictate things like this to these companies or are they just asking nicely? Um, well, as I said right now, they are taking the, in my view, uh, two-week approach, a yeah. mother-may-I approach. Uh, and they do have uh, stronger regulatory tools with teeth uh, in the uh, toolbox, and that does include, as I said, uh, the order and council uh, uh, measures in the Telecommunications Act, where the government doesn't have to say, you know, can you please come up with in 60 days? They order them to come up with. They can also use future spectrum auctions to impose conditions on license or conditions of license. So these companies are not, um, you know, voluntarily coming up with solutions, but as a condition of their license, getting access to the spectrum that they need to provide mobile wireless services, smartphone services. 
um, they have to uh, provide these kinds of fallback positions. There are a million and one other tools in there, too. There's so much lobbying that takes place uh, in this area around important bills that are now on the table in government, and some of which are close to passing. The Online Streaming Act, the Online News Mm -hmm. Act, Online Arms, Privacy Act, and so on. Well, the government could just kind of, you know, stop taking their calls uh, to impress upon them the need uh, for these, you know, small number of private players with enormous clout over society's communication services to do what they need to do. We always hear from uh, all corners that the answer to all of this is competition. We need more competition. That's why we pay so much. That's why we're so dependent on one or two providers. Um, first of all, do you agree with that? Is competition sort of at the the root of all evils when it comes to telecommunications in Canada? And and why do we have such limited competition? Right. Yeah, I, in this particular case, I don't think uh, the idea of uh, competition and more competition is the uh, um, solution to all that ails us. You know, these uh, services are not concentrated uh, by accident. There is long-standing reasons why we have concentrated communication markets. It's extremely expensive to build out the mobile wireless and fixed internet access networks that people rely on to use these essential uh, services, and they are prone uh, to monopoly or high levels of concentration. And I think the key thing here is that we need to recognize these realities and act accordingly. As I said at the very beginning, the problem is that regardless of what we might want, we're always going to have a situation where these essential communication services that are important to, you know, across the economy and society and people's day-to-day lives all depend upon a small number of private companies to deliver them. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, we need to have public obligations to match that clout and that reality and, you know, then let the market rip uh, insofar that it can do that. And, it, you know, the barriers, the geography and the population, I mean, is that that's what we constantly hear? Is that is that the first thing and that's where the government gets involved and helps out on that front? To my mind, um, I believe that those are red herrings. Oh, really? uh, there's no doubt that Canada has a very large uh, land mass. But the equally important consideration and more important consideration in my mind is that Canada has an extraordinary high per- percentage of its population living in a small number of very large cities. I can't remember what the numbers are exactly, but it's something like 60% or something like that that live in the top five cities in Canada. And so that's a very, very high uh, uh, percentage of the population living in a a very small number of big cities. And what that means is that the economics of providing communication services are actually quite favorable in this country compared to those where the population is more dispersed. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, you don't hear that very often. Um, Okay. Uh, Great discussion. Thank you so much, Doctor. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate uh, speaking with you. Take care. Uh, Dr. Dwayne Winsek, a communications professor at Carleton University and the director of the Canadian Media Concentration Research Project. (laughs) Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.